in Psalm 85 this morning. So if you haven't already done that, I just encourage you to, um, to turn there. And as you're doing that, um, I just want us to take a minute as we get started to think about perspective. Because the perspective that we have on life and on so many things can just, it can impact so many different areas of life and just how we approach life and, and, and what we do. And five years ago, there was a commercial that changed my perspective on an area of my life that has impacted me virtually every single day um, since then. Um, five years ago, this was actually a Super Bowl commercial. I mean, how many of you could say a Super Bowl commercial changed your life? Well, I could. Um, and, and honestly, five years ago, the, the Super Bowl from five years ago, um, I remember this commercial super vividly. Before I Googled it this week, I couldn't have told you who played in that Super Bowl. Um, it was Denver over Carolina, by the way, if you're interested. Um, but yeah, um, I have never forgotten that commercial after seeing it. And it impacts a decision I make almost every day. And so because it impacted me so much, I wanted to take a moment and share it with you this morning. So if we could just play that really quickly. Honey, you know where my base socks are? Check the walk-in closet. Richard, are you looking for these? There are two types of people in the world. Those who are content to blend in, these people walk through life like beige socks, uninspired and bored. And there are those who expect more. They're exciting. They have pizzazz. Eventually, the beige sock people get lost or devoured by the ones who stand out. Do you want to be devoured? Richard? No. Okay, you can stop it there. We don't need to see anymore. Honestly, also, until I Googled it and brought up that commercial a little bit ago, I didn't remember what the commercial was for. All I remembered was I never wanted to wear beige socks again the rest of my life. I literally, this is no joke. That day after the Super Bowl was over, I went into my bedroom, I took every pair of beige socks, probably all the black ones too, out of my drawer and got rid of them. And I have not worn beige socks since then. If you can see these, these are one of the, yeah, they got... And they start up here with polka dots and orange and stripes and triangles, and there's more stripes on the bottom. They bo yes, they're both that color. I, I haven't gone that far. I, do I don't wear opposite socks. I leave that for my daughter. She's the one who never wears matching socks. But yeah, I, I, I got rid of all of them. And so, you know, honestly, whether, what color socks you wear is not a huge life-changing thing, but it brings me at least a little bit of joy every day to what would otherwise be a pretty mundane and, and boring um, decision. It makes getting dressed every day a little bit more fun. Um, and it makes some Christmases a little more fun when you get a pack of 30 multicolored socks and all kinds of stuff like that. So it, it's always a lot of fun. But it shifted my perspective about wearing socks. It shifted how I look at that one small thing. So our perspective in life can really have an impact on a much, much broader areas of our life. It can impact every decision that you make every day. And it's very easy for us in our lives to focus on the here and now, to focus on, you know, the trouble, the, the trial, the pain, the misery, the hurt, the suffering, um, you know, all those kinds of 
awful things that can be going on around us in the, in the fallen world that we live in today. But this morning, from Psalm 85, I truly believe the psalmist wants us to, to shift our perspective and to have a more godly perspective on life. One where we remember the past and we hope for the future, and that gives us the strength that we need to live today. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to be reminded to remember the past, to hope for the future, so that we have the strength we need to live for today. So let me start by praying, and then we'll dive into the text from Psalm 85. Father God, I thank you for just the small things in life that can give us joy, like multicolored socks, and the other things that can change our perspective. God, I pray this morning as we look at the words of the psalmist from Psalm 85, God, that you would help us to have the type of perspective on life that you want us to have. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our lives to help us see these things, to help us to remember them, and to help us have the right perspective about the future, knowing that you are sovereign, you are overall, and that you are in control. Just speak to our hearts through your word this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 85, start by reading verses 1 through 3, where, we, where the psalmist talks about remembering the past. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So those first three verses are all about the past tense. They're all about something God has done in the past. And historically, context-wise, we don't know what the psalmist is talking about. It's clear that he's talking about sometime that God delivered the nation of Israel from something. Some commentators think that it was potentially the Babylonian exile that he had delivered them from. And so this would be a, a post-exilic one that was written after the children of Israel came back to the land of Israel from, from the land of Babylon. Others think it might have been before that, that it could have been you know, one of the times where the, the land of Israel had been possessed. Or um, not possessed. What's the word I'm thinking of? Occupied. That's not the word I was looking for, but it works. Um, <laughs> occupied by like the Philistines or another group uh, like that, that they had been been there. But the, the, the specific context that he's talking about is not the important issue. It, the, the point is that God delivered his people from oppression by another, um, another power. And he wants people to remember what God delivered them from, what God has done. So he says, remember this, God showed us favor. He restored their fortunes. He forgave and he covered their sins. He withdrew his anger. And as he does this, the psalmist is simply practicing something that God had instructed the children of Israel over and over and over throughout their history to do. And that is remember what God had done. 21 times in the first five books, in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, 21 times, at least, probably more, God instructs the Israelites to remember something that he had done. And even when they first cross over the Jordan River, after 40 years in the wilderness, they cross the Jordan River into the land. The very first thing that God tells them to do is to remember. Listen to this from John 
or from Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down and place them where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off from the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So God, so that they would remember for all time what happened when they crossed into the promised land, he had them erect a, a memorial of stones. In that day and then the age and that culture, that was not something that was unique. There was an idea called standing stones. And if you study the history of the ancient Near East, you will see that it was common for them to take, in, just culturally, a stone and to stand it up as a memorial to remind them of a significant event that had happened. And throughout the, the um, early part of the New Old Testament, you see again and again that God has people do this to erect a standing stone. And so here the entire nation erects this monument to remind them of when they crossed over the Jordan River. And as you read through um, the Old Testament, you see God created festivals for that exact purpose. The, the Jewish religious calendar is full of festivals, the chief one being the, the festival of the Passover. What's the purpose of the Passover? So that they will remember that night in Egypt when the angel of death passed, passed over their houses and spared the firstborn son before they were delivered out of Egypt. That's the whole purpose of that festival of Passover. And why does God do that? I think it's because God knows that both the children of Israel were and we today are forgetful people. And if we're going to follow him today, we need to remember where we came from. We need to remember what God has done for us in the past. And so it's important, I think, for us today, even though we don't have maybe as many reminders and memorials as, as God gave the Israelites in the Old Testament, we have things like communion that we celebrate on a regular basis. Why do we do that? What did Jesus say when he established the ordinance of communion? Do this in remembrance of me. But I think just like the children of Israel, I know I am a forgetful person. And I need to create for myself reminders of what God has done. If you walk into my office today at Love, Inc., um, hanging on my wall right next to my desk, you'll see two cases um, of, of golf balls that are sitting up there. And most people walk in and they see those and they think, oh, you like to play golf. How, how, are you any good at it? I, no, I'm terrible. But I, I do like to play. But honestly, the fact that I like to play golf has really nothing to do with why those two cases of golf balls are on my, on my desk. You see, there's a lot bigger story behind those golf balls that are sitting in my office. Um, about 16 years ago, um, we had... I'd been in ministry, I'd been a youth pastor for about 20 years, 
And um, I felt God was calling me out of working directly with teens um, to move on to work with either college, young adults, some, something in that field. But the, the transition was a little bit rough. It didn't go, it, it wasn't like leaving one church, going right to another. Um, the position at the church I was at down in California ended, and we sold our house there. And as a family, we moved back up here to Yakima because that's where my wife's um, parents live. And we moved in, and we lived with my wife's parents for a year and a half. Um, and after doing that for about six months, um, maybe seven or eight, we um, had been through this whole job search process of trying to find that next ministry position um, a number of times. And, you know, after you've applied for a position and you've been told no over and over, it's like, well, you know, we really like what you have to say, but you're not quite the guy that we feel is right for us. And you hear that again and again and again, eventually it starts to wear on you. Yes, you know God's in control of the whole process. You know he's going to lead you where you want to go eventually. But hearing, knowing, just that feeling of rejection again and again and again gets really old and gets really tired. And so it, it gets discouraging. And honestly, you know, when you're, you're doing that, you're looking for a job, you still need to work. You need to do something to help support your family. So I got a job working at Apple Tree Golf Course. And one of the things that I did when I worked at Apple Tree was I mowed greens. And there was one particular morning, we'd just been through a process with the church, and I was feeling, you know, just exceptionally discouraged and just really feeling like, God, why have you done this? Why have you brought us here? Why have you left us here? Have you forgotten about us? You know, what, what's the point? I'm just, am I going to be stuck, you know, working at a golf course and mowing lawn for the rest of my life? Why? What's going on? And that morning, as I drove, um, you kind of alternate greens if you're mowing. There's usually two of you that are mowing. And so I'd mowed the putting green, somebody else was mowing um, the first green, so I went to, to green number two. If you played apple tree, you know that the second green, it's up on top of a hill, kind of on a ridge, um, one of the highest points on the golf course. And I remember driving up the hill to come to green number two. And as I get there, and you look at the green, one of the first things you do if you're mowing a green, you have to get off your mower, and you have to clear off any obstructions that are on the green, which are usually like, you know, rocks or branches or something like that and fix any um, ball marks. But when I come up over the ridge and the sun, this is early in the morning, sun's just starting to hit the green, so it's just, you know, super bright and lit up. And I look at it and, and I see this speck in the middle of the green. And it's just sitting there. It's like, it's like somebody had teed off from two that night and just said, ah, forget it. It probably got lost in the, and then they left. It was sitting in the middle of the green. I mean, they could have had a birdie. If they'd gone up and put it, I don't know what whoever hit that was thinking. But they left their ball there. And this ball, you can't, you can't see what it says on it, but this ball has one word written on it, and that word is hope. And I walk up to the green, and I bend over, and I pick up that ball that says hope. And it's like God is saying to me, don't lose hope. Don't give up. I haven't forgotten about you. This is not the end of your story. And it was probably, that would have been early summer probably, it was probably another seven, eight months um, before that whole process ended and we were called to be a pastor of a church in Portland that we went to and I pastored for six years. But the whole rest of that summer that I was working at Apple Tree and I was mowing, every time I would drive by and I would see a, a golf ball sitting somewhere around the course, because if you've been golfing, you know people lose a lot of golf balls. 
And every time I would find one, and specifically one that had like some kind of logo on it, to me, that was God's way of reminding me every day as I found those different balls, don't give up. I haven't forgotten about you. Continue to hope. And so for me, when I look at those two cases of golf balls on the wall of my office, probably 75% of those balls are balls that I found that summer on Apple Tree Golf Course that have some kind of different logo or something on it. And so for me, that is my own memorial, standing stone, reminder to remember what God has done. And remember, wherever I'm at, no matter what's happening, God's not finished with me. The story is not over. I need to remember how God has worked. We all need to remember that. Remember what He has delivered you from. Remember how He has blessed you. And remember how He has saved you. So that's the first thing I want us to remember this morning, is just remember the past. And then as you read through the psalm, you see we don't just remember the past, we also need to cry out for present revival. Cry for present revival. Look at verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So in the next part of the psalm, the psalmist shifts from remembering the past, remembering how God has delivered them, to the present. And praying for God to, just as you delivered us in the past, deliver us again today. We've seen you do it before, now please restore us again. And he asks God for salvation and for restoration and for revival. And as part of his request, the psalmist appeals to God's character, specifically his steadfast love. And the Hebrew word that's used here for steadfast love, I just want to camp on this for a couple minutes, is the word hesed. And the Hebrew word hesed, it's translated a few different ways in the Old Testament or in different um, translations of the Bible. Hesed can be translated as either loving kindness, faithfulness, goodness, compassion, unfailing love, loyal love. That's what the psalmist is appealing to. And it's what God, when God appeared in the, back in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 34, this is, you know, the Israelites now, they've, they've crossed over the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, they've gone to Mount Sinai, and God is going to deliver them the laws. As a matter of fact, he's already given them the Ten Commandments, but while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, um, the children of Israel got tired of waiting for him. So if you remember the story, they built this golden calf, and they started to worship it, and Moses comes down the mountain, and he sees the golden calf, that the, the people are worshiping it, and Moses gets angry, and he throws the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments down, and you know, then God judges the people, and then Moses goes back up the mountain to plead with God to deliver them and to receive the, the second tablets of the Ten Commandments. And so it's in that context of after Moses has gone back up the mountain, he's getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments for the second time on those tablets, that one of the things he asks God in the midst of that, he says, God, show me yourself. Let me see you. And God says, Moses, I, I can't do that. No one can see me and live. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I will pass by you and I'll, I'll, I'll cover you. 
I'll pass by you and you can see the after effects, the afterglow of my glory. That's as close as you can come to seeing me and to seeing who I am. And in the time that that happens, when God passes by Moses, God, as his glory is passing by, God describes himself to Moses. He says to Moses, Moses, this is who I am. If you could see me, you would see the full glory of this, who I am. And listen to how God describes himself. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's that word has said, and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love has said for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That word has said, when God chooses to describe himself to Moses, that is the word he uses twice in that description, describe himself as someone who has loving kindness, faithfulness, compassion, unfailing love, a loyal love. So when God was telling Moses who he was, that's how he describes himself. And now the psalmist, when they need God's deliverance again, that's what the psalmist appeals to. The psalmist is saying, God, this is how you described yourself to Moses. Now I'm appealing to the fact that you have said you are a God of steadfast, unfailing, loyal love. A love that won't go away. A love that won't stop. That you are committed to loving us, your people. That is why I am begging you to deliver us once again today. Please take action, God. Put your love into action for us. Show us your said, your steadfast love, and deliver us today. So the progression of the psalm goes from we remember the past, and that remembrance of the past sparks the psalmist's prayer for deliverance and revival in the present. And that's why we, today, we need to remember our past as well, and remember what God has done. Because when we remember what God has done in the past, it can change our perspective today. It renews our faith that He can and He will work in our current situation, no matter how bad, how difficult, how hard, how frustrating it is, God will remain at work today. And we should be encouraged and strengthened to cry out to Him whenever our current situation seems hopeless. And when we do that, it's also an acknowledgement, saying, God, You are the one who worked in the past and has delivered in the past. You are the one who needs to work today. It is only You who can give me the strength that I need to continue on and to endure today. So we remember the past, but then we also need to hope for the future. And that's the last part of this psalm. If you look at verses 8 through 13 with me. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to the people of His saints. And, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that, glo that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, 
and make his footsteps away. So we see the shift in tenses again from the past to the present to the future. He will speak. The Lord will give what is good. Righteousness will go before him. And finally, the psalmist is looking ahead to the future, to what will come. And for the psalmist, he's looking ahead to the coming Messiah that's going to come and this, the kingdom of God that will be established here on earth, knowing that God is going to use his attributes to establish his kingdom, his steadfast love, his said, his faithfulness, his righteousness. And he will use those, as he says, to bring about peace and righteousness and prosperity. So the psalmist places his hope for the future as well in who God is. Once again, he uses that word hesed in verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. That hesed, that loyal love that's rooted. And, and another part of, of that, that hesed, that word in Hebrew that I didn't talk about earlier, is the fact that hesed is a word that is rooted in relationship. So when the psalmist talks about God's steadfast love, he's not just appealing to God's character and how God described himself. But he's saying, God, because of your relationship with us, that is why you have steadfast love and, and, and that loyal love for us. He's appealing to his covenant with Israel. The fact that God made a commitment to the people of Israel. And because of that covenant, the psalmist is saying, Please, God, your unfailing love, carry that out and deliver us and lead us into that future that you have for us. And today, for us, we can cry out and we can appeal and we can rest in that unfailing, steadfast love, that said type of love because of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you are a follower of His, that relationship now that you have with him through Jesus Christ. God, steadfast, loyal love will continually be poured out on you. And he will sustain you. He will deliver you. He will help you through all of those times. And the psalmist, as he looks towards the future and he has that hope for the future, he continues to appeal to God's character. He appeals to God's faithfulness. And once again, in using that word faithfulness, he's looking back to that same passage from Exodus 34, um, verse 6, because that's another one of the words that God uses there to describe himself. In God's description of his character, he, he describes himself as abounding in steadfast love, that was that has said, and faithfulness. And the Hebrew word for faithfulness carries the idea of, of permanence and stability and security of being trustworthy. So another aspect of how God describes himself is that he is a God that is trustworthy, that is faithful, that he is a God that keeps his promises. That if God has said something, he has made a promise, and because of his character, because of who he is, he will fulfill it. And he will carry that out. Because that's who he is. And because that's who God is, we can not just remember the past, not just ask God for deliverance in the future, but we can have hope for the future and for what's to come, for his kingdom that will one day be established on earth. And he talks about, at the end of the psalm, just a few bits of that, you know, peace and righteousness and prosperity 
And, and I could go on for another hour. You get me talking about the word for peace there, shalom. Um, yeah, I, we, I, I can't even get into that because there's just not time to cover all the talks about that is one of my favorite things to talk about in the Word. But it suffice to say, our hope for the future is that that's the world that will come and be established one day. When there is a new heaven and a new earth, it will be a place that is characterized by God's peace, His shalom everywhere, His righteousness, prosperity. All of those things will be true. And that is what we can hope for as we look to the future. So this morning, I mean, there's a lot there in Psalm 85. But my goal is, I, I just want to give you one thing to take home with you today. One thing that you remember. And that's what it is. My encouragement to you this morning is that you remember the past. Um, there was a number of years ago, I read a book um, by a guy by the name of Len Sweet. And in that book, um, the, the name of the book is called Soul Salsa. And it's, it's a, just a series of different types of spiritual disciplines. Um, for, for the 21st century. And the fir- first chapter of that book, he entitled something called Mezuzah, Your Universe. And if you know what a mezuzah is, in, in the Old Testament, um, one of the instructions to the children of Israel was that they would um, write the promises of God on the doorposts of their house and remember them as they go in and they go out. And so one of the ways that the children of Israel set up to do that is they created what they call a mezuzah. And a mezuzah is just a little stone. Typically, they're stones. Sometimes they're a little more ornate ornate than that. But it's just a little stone container that you would nail or screw into the doorpost of your house. And within that is a tiny scroll that contains what's known as the Shema from the book of Deuteronomy that begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it goes on from there as just instructions to the children of Israel of how to live. But that mezuzah would be there every day and as a a good, observant Jewish person would go in and out of their house, they would touch that every day and they would recite the Shema and be reminded that the Lord was their God, that He was one and that everything that they did through the day should be to bring Him honor and glory. And so in Len Sweet's book, Mezuzah, Your Universe, he takes that idea and he says, so let's today in the 21st century, maybe you're not going to put a mezuzah on your door, But what are other ways that you can build in reminders for yourself throughout your day of what God has done for you? That's why I've got, like I said, those golf balls on on the wall in my office. Um, And I've got got things like that throughout the house at home. My, My entire main part of my office is full of just little things like that. I have a family Bible there that goes back... um, generations. I think it's the copyright and it's the early 1800s. And it's from like great-great-grandparents who brought it over from Germany. The whole Bible's in German. I can't read a thing, but I know enough that I could find um, the book of Jeremiah. So I would open them to Jeremiah 29, which is where God talks about um, in his word that Israelites about um, shalom. And you know, if you seek the shalom of the place where you live, then you will find your shalom. But I, I have that Bible there to remind me of just the history and the heritage that I have as a follower of Christ. And on each side of that, I have a Bible from my dad and an old Bible from my mom that are sitting there. It's just that, that reminder of that family heritage that I have. I, I have a small cup in my office that's from the, um, the garden tomb in Israel. I remember it's a reminder of taking communion with a, a, a tour group that I went with to Israel when I gra- after I graduated from seminary. 
And I can remember when I look at that cup, it's a, it's a little communion cup that we drank grape juice out of, made out of olive wood. But the thing I remember most about it is as we were sitting there in the garden tomb, and it, if, you, if you've seen pictures of it or if you've been there, there's just this big garden with you know, a place that um, some people think may have been the tomb that Christ was buried in. But the, the beautiful thing about it is our tour group was there and we were taking communion and we were singing songs of praise and worship. And as we were doing that, I just I stopped singing and I listened because throughout that whole area, there were probably at least four or five other tour groups that were doing the same thing, but they were from all over the world. How do I know that? I didn't talk to any of them, but I could hear them sing and they were not singing in English. But I recognized the tunes of the songs that they were singing. And I just, I remember vividly just thinking, you know, this may be as close to what heaven and the kingdom of God is going to be like. I mean, this is a picture, a glimpse of what it will be like one day when we are all gathered around the throne, worshiping God together. Because we come from all over the world, all kinds of different traditions, but here we are all together singing praise and worship to our God. So finding ways to take just those kind of everyday objects and use them as a reminder of what God has done. That's the idea of mezuzah, your universe. And so I want to I help you um, with doing that today. I'm going to give you a chance. We talked a little bit earlier about standing stones and how people would take those stones and use them as a reminder. I want to give you a chance this morning to create your own um, standing stone. And so in a few minutes, uh, when the worship team comes up here and they begin to play a closing song, uh, I would just invite you to just, you know, pray and think about, God, what are some things that you have done in my past? What is maybe one thing that I have seen you do, one way that you have delivered me or blessed me, or something that I can remember that I need to remember? Or maybe it's just creating yourself a reminder. I just took one and I just wrote the word remember on it in Psalm 85. Maybe that's what you need to do. Just be reminded to remember every day the past and what God has done and how he has worked in your life. So when, when the worship team comes, um, I would just encourage you during that closing song to take a minute, come down, grab one of these Sharpies, and just write a, a word, a verse, something that will help you remember some way that God has worked in your life in the past. And use that to give you hope for the future, knowing that God will give us what we need for today. Let me pray.